When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Hello and welcome to another episode of My Millennial Property. I'm Emily Wallace and here with John Pigeon. Now, today we actually have a very special guest joining us. Now, I say special because he's special to me, but he's also special because he knows a lot about commercial property. My dad, also known as Matthew Wallace. Welcome to My Millennial Property. Thank you for having me. Welcome, Matthew. Now, John, it's been a hot topic in the Facebook group, hasn't it? We have talked so much about residential property, but commercial property feels like an unknown to a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, it's a really common one for, I suppose, advanced investors, isn't it? And, and we've spoken about it previously that we're going to get some stuff for the advanced folk in the group, but that doesn't mean you need to tune off now if you're a first-time investor either because, uh, yeah, it's really interesting to be able to unpack the commercial stuff, not comparing it against residential, but just looking at the ins and outs of how to go and buy commercial real estate. So looking forward to this one. Definitely. Let's get into it. So just for the context, for those of you listening, um, outside of just being my dad, my dad, Matthew, is actually in commercial real estate. He has bought a number of commercial properties himself uh, through joint ventures and also now works for Knight Frank down in Hobart. Shout out to the Tasmanian listeners. So he is a wealth of knowledge. And certainly when John said, who can we get on the podcast to talk commercial in plain terms? It was the first person I thought of naturally. Now, as a starting point, let's call you Matthew. <laughs> Matthew, um, what would you say is the key difference between commercial versus residential property? Sure. Well, there's, there's a few key differences. I mean, if we go to start at a high level, the, the first main difference is it's a different type of property and it has different amenity. So commercial property, you're running a business out of it. Um, so that's different, obviously, than residential, which is somewhere where you live. Um, the property location is often different. You're looking for busy streets. You're looking for main intersections. Um, again, that's different than residential. And I think rather than comparing it to residential, as John mentioned before, if we just look at some of the attributes of commercial property, uh, they have long leases. So often a commercial lease will be three years or five years, sometimes even longer. And the tenant has options at the end of that lease to then renew for another term. So that's that's a sort of fundamental difference. You've got ideally a long-term tenant who's set up a business and running it from the premises and they have options to stay. Um, the tenant often pays the outgoings, so the statutory outgoings of rates and land tax, um, water and sewerage are normally paid by the tenant. Um, they 
often have larger vacancies at changeover. So whereas a residential property changeover in a few weeks, commercial property often is vacant for longer. So you have a longer term tenant, but when it becomes vacant, they can often be vacant for longer. And there's also often a cost to get a new tenant in because the fit out of the previous business doesn't always suit the next business. And those costs are often borne in part by the landlord um, which they call a lease incentive. So that's another thing that commercial properties have is they uh, often provide lease incentives for incoming tenants. So that's a cost borne, cost borne by the landlord um, that they don't bear on residential properties. So that, that's a lot to unpack in terms <laughs> of what, what the differences are and what to consider. John, what stood out most for you in, in all of that? Yeah, look, I suppose, Emily, when I've always thought about commercial. It, for me, it was uh, it's something that I would do if I was to start up a self-managed super fund. Um, being a business owner, I would buy maybe a commercial um, office space for my, my own business to run. And, and it was, I suppose, um, safeguarding my investment because I'm the one renting it. So um, no vacancies. And if, uh, if worst case scenario, I know that I've bought it uh, in, a, in a good location that's going to be always in demand. But you mentioned, Matthew, about the, the vacancies. Um, how do you see that vary between, I suppose, the, the variances of commercial real estate like industrial, retail, warehouse, et cetera? Do you see uh, one of those being more high vacancy than the other or does it depend on the region that we're in uh, and the size of the building and the, in, and the, the, the smaller components of that? Sure, really good question, John. There's a couple of components, I guess, to that answer. One is the industries, which you're talking about, and the type of property, so retail versus, let's say, industrial. And it often depends on the cycle the market's in. So often in a buoyant market, industrial is more in demand than it is, let's say, in, in a depressed market. In a depressed market, I'm talking about the economy. Um, so, so there are, are some sort of cyclical components depending on what type of investment you make. But then there's also some commercial property, which I look at um, the tenants being what I call non-discretionary spending. So that whether the economy is good or bad, you're still going to get your hair cut as an example. So a hairdresser um, probably has the same demand for their business and then therefore the same demand for a tenancy um, in good times and in bad. So there's a little bit in that, but you can see that there's different um, industries that are affected different uh, differently in the t cycle of the economy, but then also certain businesses are more impacted than others. And that sort of leads to your vacancy. And that really leads to when you're buying a commercial property, you will, when you sort of get into the weeds a bit, you'll see that there's different returns um, depending on what type of property you're buying and what type of industry or tenant it's set up for. And that really reflects some of those things. Yeah, okay. So just following on from that, in residential space, we call, well, I call 2% vacancy rate a, a pretty balanced um, rate where two weeks of vacancy a year is is pretty good for the for the owner um, if it's up around four five six percent um, I'm starting to get a little bit worried about that do you, do you have any figures that you work on uh, how do you calculate that 
Yeah, okay. So so more generally, if we talk about office space, and um, then again, that again depends on the cycle, but and depends on how many new buildings are built in the CBD. But office space more generally has occupancy, which is available space, of probably 5 to 10%. So that doesn't mean that your property is necessarily vacant 5 to 10% of the time. You've normally got a slight surplus of office space and then you've got different qualities of office space and they call them A, B, C and D grade and people often move from one to the other. And as they're moving, there's a vacancy for a period of time. But I think to more particularly to your question, if you've got a commercial property and let's say you've got a five-year lease and tenant will see that lease term out, they may renew for another five years or they may move out. If they move out, you may have downtime of, let's say, three months, which is not three months till you find a tenant, but three months till you find the tenant and that and you give the tenant some rent free to get the premises ready to move into. So whereas your residential might be two weeks a year, your commercial might be three months every five years. So it's not a dissimilar amount. It just comes in larger lumps. So you get a five-year period with no vacancy in that example, and then you have three months of total vacancy. And, and so your cash flow is interrupted to a larger extent, but less frequently. That makes a lot of sense. And I guess it's also reflective of, yeah, the period of time that it's, that it's rented out for, that it's leased for. Um, just taking one step back, I guess, for listeners thinking about getting into commercial property, am I right in saying that it's from a lending point of view, and I know you're not a broker, but you've gotten into plenty of commercial yourself, um, do you need more upfront? Like, do you need more funds to actually get into commercial? Do the loans, like, you know, for a first home buyer, they might only need a 10% deposit and, and take a 90% loan. Is it similar with commercial or do you need more money? Uh, it, yes, definitely um, need more equity. So the normal LVR, so the lending value ratios for commercial property, the sort of the upper end is 70% and that tends to be for your blue chip tenants, so your Woolworths, your Coles, those type of tenants, you know, Australian listed uh, companies that are tenants and it probably goes down to 50% for what you might call mixed use, um, lower uh, financial capacity tenants that are running maybe takeaway shops um, and retail outlets. So your range is sort of 50 to 70% LVR, whereas on your residential, the most common is obviously your 80%. So you certainly need more equity to get in, um, in into commercial property. Okay, it's a really interesting point um, that you have there, Matthew. And so for, for the listeners, we need to put down in that example of Coles and Woolies, we need to put down a 30% deposit and the banks will lend us a 70% uh, or worst case scenario, we put in 50% and the banks will lend us the other 50. Um, what, what would you say is in today's times, like we're at record low interest rates um, and term deposits are extremely low as a result of that. Uh, residential lending, we're probably looking at around 2% uh, to, to maybe 3% for investment lending. What are you seeing in the commercial space, Matthew? Oh, look, it's certainly not dissimilar. Um, and and the upper end of in terms of the quality of your tenants, so your Woolworths and Coles, so landlords that own those properties are borrowing very competitive with a home loan rate, so probably in the high 1%, so 1.8, 1.9, up to 2%. Uh, if you go into mixed use, um, let's say regional 
commercial properties, you're probably closer to 3%. So it's not dissimilar to your home loan rates. And certainly with your blue chip tenants, you're probably at the sharp end of your home loan rates in terms of your borrowing costs. Makes sense. And surprising, actually. I mean, I think the perception of commercial is just a lot of unknown, but I think almost a um, assumption is that there are much higher lending interest rates. So it's actually not too far off where residential is sitting, which is good to know. We are going to take a quick break. I've got some more questions for you um, to unpack about commercial. And certainly I think, you know, for people thinking about getting into commercial, what steps they need to take. So we'll be back in just a minute. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. We also have a panel of trusted mortgage brokers we can connect you with to get you into your first home, an investment property purchase, or to review your current loan if you don't have a broker. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers, and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Okay, so we're back with Matthew, my dad. And I have a question for you just around, I guess, trends in commercial. So in residential, we often see almost like a fad or a phase. So for example, villa units might be really popular and the the sought after thing. And then all of a sudden apartments really take a peak. In the commercial space, I assume this is really strongly impacted by uh, economically what's really doing well. But of late, has there been a real winner in the commercial space um, that has performed well and has there been something that's really not gone so well? Yeah, great question. Um, if you look at the last two years, and we've been obviously in COVID for most of that, but if we if we go back sort of two years and, and uh, look at what's been really the leading edge of the commercial market in that period, it's really been the supermarkets. And again, that's been COVID influenced. Um, so their their returns or their yields have sharpened, which means the prices have, have increased. Same with the fast food chains. Um, certainly they've, they've done really well in recent times and also industrial. 
Um, and I think industrially is more probably than just COVID. There is a, a much, there's an increasing demand for um, businesses to use sort of industrial sort of storage and have a, let's call it a, a front of office or a front of house uh, in the CBD, but they are trying to avoid those huge rents and actually making use of industrial space. So they're probably the three uh, main winners in the last 12 months. There's also private car parks. So they're the sort of more the single development, uh, single level car parks, and they're really development sites. So their upside really comes when either the owner develops it, but but often the owner then sells to the next person who is a developer and is going to develop it. And so the land value, particularly in um, some of the CBD areas for that, that sort of square metre of car park has really gone up significantly in the last two or three years. So you're talking about a car park that's just entry level, like single, it's literally just land, right? Yes. Yeah, okay, it makes sense. Yeah, interesting you say um, that the supermarket space, Matthew, I think... I don't know, go back maybe 20 years here on the Central Coast, uh, a Westfield was developed in um, a place called Erina. And prior to that point, um, Gosford was the the hub commercially for businesses and shops and, and any retail outlet, basically. And within, uh, as soon as the Westfield was born, Gosford became a ghost town. Um, which was quite, and today is literally still recovering from that. Um, how how do you see uh, val- commercial values rise and fall in that space um, because of the dominance of maybe a, a Westfield or a, a Coles and a Woolies? Well, I think the market shifts more generally between those sort of industries, so to speak. And so what's become, what if we go back, say, five or six years ago when online shopping first came about, there was a bit of a cloud over retail more generally, but particularly supermarkets and groceries because there was a concept that people would just buy everything online and it would be delivered to your door. And although that's had some reasonable traction, I don't think it's had as much as that was first envisaged and certainly the discount that came in the marketplace sort of six or seven years ago for the online shopping. So um, whereas if you look at things and winding back a fair uh, period of time, that when we had videos and DVDs and you had the video huts and all those and they were popping up everywhere, they were great businesses, they were doing really well, paying big rents and then almost with a click of your fingers, they'd sort of, they've all disappeared and they've all had to be reconverted you know, into and there are a whole range of things, but a lot of pharmacies are opening up and, and other things are, you know, gyms and whatever in what used to be, um, you know, video huts and and the like. So the market tends to move, I think, with consumer demand um, and it's also obviously influenced by the economy as well. That makes sense. I think there's plenty of examples I can think of where we used to go and get a blockbuster movie and it's now a gym or it's now a pharmacy and it's just, you know, the change of the times over time um, and it's certainly what's in and and what's evolving. I think it impacts any market but obviously commercial directly. In terms of, I guess, someone going forth for a commercial property, let's put the hat on of someone who might be listening. Maybe they are a business owner um, or are looking for a commercial space that would belong to a business owner in say, let's just say a service-based where it's face-to-face communication at some point as opposed to like a retail product. What would be the key things you would be looking out for 
in an office space or a street frontage when you're going forward for that type of commercial property? So both those examples, owner-occupied or um, looking for a good tenant, um, if it's in a service-based industry, you need to be in, an, in a location that is easy to access. So that may be right in the middle of town where it's foot traffic um, and it's easy access because um, you know, everybody's coming into, into the CBD or it may be just on the outskirts of the CBD where you've got um, – plenty of or ample parking but I think it's probably one of those two things you really got to look at how your your customers if you're an owner occupier actually getting to your front door and making sure that you're making that easy and then when you get inside the building you've got to make sure they're having the appropriate experience. Mm, Good one so Again, for someone thinking, yeah, look, uh, this commercial space sort of interests me as an an investor, Uh, this is a really sort of uh, wide and varied question, but what would you see the entry point being for for someone getting into commercial real estate? Is it is it beyond uh, a lot of a lot of uh, investors, and do they need to go in, say, joint venture or or go in with a conglomerate, or is it uh, is it achievable for someone as an individual? Look, that's a great question, John, and I think the answer is both. So, look, I think it's achievable within reason for. A lot of people, if it's assuming it's not their first investment and they've probably dipped their toe in the water with residential, um, had a couple of properties and you know, hopefully made a couple of gains, they may well have enough equity then to step into the commercial market. Um, and the, the the commercial market, there's no sort of bottom in price, so to speak, but you're probably, I guess, indicatively looking at sort of close to a million dollars as probably an initial in total investment. So you need your equity. Um, and what tends to happen is you get better return if you can move beyond that because there's not as many competitors. You'll also potentially get a better quality of tenant, um, which means you don't have quite as many uh, issues as a landlord in having tenants changing over quite regularly. Um, And so when I say the answer is both, there's a lot of people that sort of join up with two or three others and have a syndicate, you might call it, but it's not a formal syndicate. It's just two or three or four like-minded individuals who know each other put their resources together and instead of spending a million dollars, they then might go and spend four or five million and then you're really moving up the, the line, if you like, in terms of quality of property and quality of tenant. So, so in most cases, you would see investors commercially uh, using equity as opposed to uh, putting down a 30% deposit with cash? Uh, well, equity could be either cash or it could be equity against other properties. So, I mean, you, you, you could use your equity against other properties um, and there's no right or wrong of which is the best way to do it. It's really you've, you've needed to have made that money, whether it's uh, realised or unrealised, but it's either undrawn equity in previous properties or, or it's cash in that example. Mm. And the good thing about using equity, if it is from from some other asset, is the high yields that come with commercial property, isn't it? And the security yes. that your tenant's going to sign a five or a seven year lease to know that, yeah, my running costs of that property or that investment are well and truly covered over that five year period. Um, yes. So you can really forecast some, some um, numbers there. Um, just to give a real life example, and I guess to maybe even put some numbers in context, you can use round figures if you like, but um, it would be interesting to walk through a commercial 
property that you have owned or, you know, owned in a joint venture situation, just to explain what the tenancy looked like, what the return was, and if it's something that you've sold out of, if you're happy to disclose, you know, the sort of rough um, buy-in point versus the sell-out point and how you went about that. Sure. So, um, one that comes to mind, I've got a couple, but there's one that I didn't actually invest in, but I helped um, facilitate. So, mm -hmm. this was um, an investment in a supermarket, a Woolworths mm -hmm. supermarket. Um, mm -hmm. It was um, not in Tasmania, which is my hometown, um, mm -hmm. it was on the mainland. And the transaction happened in i got to get this right in my head. We started looking at it and do, at going into due diligence in the second half of 2016 and it was purchased in November 16. Mm -hmm. Round numbers was $10 million. And at that point, it was price? providing – that was purchase price. Um, the structure of that, just more for interest, was – half debt, half equity. The reason that was, even though the bank would have lent to 70%, is that they were um, investors who knew each other in the main, but they weren't related and whatever, and you tend to, on a conservative basis, borrow less at that point. So if something came up unforeseen and you needed to do some capital works on the property, you've got the ability to actually borrow more from the bank rather than everyone having to put money in and some may have been able to and some might not have. So you sort of avoid that issue in this example. And so, yes, that was $10 million in November 16, uh, was yielding about 6.25%. So the yields were uh, higher then than what they are now. Um, that's had good income growth because it has turnover rent. So the rent is a base rent plus a percentage of turnover. won't go into too much detail on that, but it's had good uh, rental growth over the period um, and we're now sort of five years, nearly five years in and that asset now is worth about $16.5 million. So that's a combination of two things. One is supermarkets have become a lot more popular and the yields have tightened as they have across the whole commercial market but that's probably now looking at about a 4 to 4.25% yield. So it's gone from sort of six, six and a half down to four, four and a quarter. So that's a sort of 50% tightening of, of, of the yield, plus there's been income growth that's sort of driven that price. Mm, that's a good return, isn't it? So um, you were probably hoping that you were in on that investment all those years ago, Matthew. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so w would you say commercially, not commercially speaking, but for commercial property that we've got a a higher higher risk, higher return, or just higher entry price, higher return? I, I think historically it's been a higher risk, higher return. And I think that's been the market perception. And you sort of assume you're working in a perfect market, but that's not always true. But um, So that's what the market has said. Um, it's higher risk, higher return. And I think, as I said, I think historically that's true. And I think that's because the higher risk is um, – the vacancy side, the higher risk is the financial capacity of the tenant. Um, and unlike a residential property where if somebody isn't paying the rent and they move out, you've got somebody in a fortnight um, and they can obviously leave the place in a bit of a mess and there could be a cost there. It's normally insured for more generally. On your commercial side, you can have significant costs to refurbish. 
not because the tenants left it in a um, unsatisfactory manner, but just to prepare for the next tenant who might be from a different industry. So if you had a commercial property and let's say they were running a bakery out of it, and then the next tenant is going to be a butcher or a, something totally different, there's a huge cost of which the tenant often doesn't bear much or all of it. So that there's that's where the risk is. I think you've got lumpy um, potential uh, cash outflows to get new tenants and you've also got ca uh, ongoing cash flow that can be lumpy when they move out and you've got no cash flow at all. So I think that's where the risk more comes in mm. um, and you've just got to have the capacity to be able to, do, to sort of uh, work your way through that. Yeah, so you need to be a little bit more cash heavy based on what you're investing there. But I, yeah. I love the fact that the tenants improve the, the place, not um, – not uh, wreck it and ruin it. Um, I, I know with the, the lease that I've got here in my office, like um, put new downlights in, give it a, a lick of paint, uh, replace the floorboards. Like I, I've improved it um, just because I want my commercial space for, for clients to look good and which is almost the opposite of, of residential renting, isn't it? Yes, yes, it is indeed. So just to clarify one thing on that, um, with I guess we, you know people call it a fit out of a commercial space. So it's that the um, the landlord or the owner of that property would actually have that complete for the tenant. Um, but can can they like as John just mentioned, he's done stuff to his current office space. Can they enhance that over time, or do they have to get approval from the landlord to do it, just like they would in residential? So, yes, so there's two parts to that. So, on, on the commencement of the tenancy, who's responsible for doing the fit-out? Well, the reality is it's the tenant, but the landlord on the other side wants to get a tenant. So, the, tenant's not ob the, the landlord's not obligated to refit the premises, but commercially they end up doing so or contributing a fair component towards it because they want to attract that tenant. So, they're not obligated, but it's just a commercial decision. Once the tenant's in, it's no different than any other property. They don't own the property. Um, they've obviously got a, um, any significant alterations or improvements need to be approved by the landlord. But like all improvements, if they're adding value, you, you as a landlord, you're going to um, obviously approve those. So that that's really the difference is you're not compelled as a landlord to do the improvements up front for a tenant, but you sort of commercially need to contribute. Otherwise, they'll go to somebody else. Who, who, who will and so you've just got to be competitive with the market. Matthew I've got a, a hard-hitting question for you that uh, I didn't prepare you for. <laughs> Looking into 2022 and beyond if if there's one area of commercial real estate that you would put your hard-earned cash into um, what would it be and why and I'll give you mine for a start because uh, it gives you time to think about it. Um, I, I just think when cities are getting um, tightened with more apartments, more units, everyone living on top of each other, I just think the need for extra storage is, is only going to increase. So if I had a million dollars, $10 million, whatever it is, I, I'd be putting up storage unit after storage unit, low upkeep, put some alarm systems in, put some codes in and let it run itself because people just need to store their boats or their caravans or their 
extra stuff that they haven't got room for in their tiny little apartment. Um, over to you. Look, John, I think that's certainly one of the areas that is certainly set to increase in value going forward um, and it would be sort of one of the top three on, on in any list, I think, and certainly on my list. Um, and I, I think the couple of things I would just um, not caution but just be aware of when you're looking at that is one of the things I look at for when I look at property is whether it can be replicated. And one of the things with those industrial storage um, sort of facilities is they're easy to replicate. Now, that doesn't mean they won't go up in value because I do think they will and they're going to be more in demand and people are running businesses and they're going to charge more for it. But it is capped, if you like, in my opinion, by the ability to just continue to replicate it. Um, uh, one of the other areas I like, and I know I've spoken about supermarkets, and I want your um, listeners to think that I'm only talking about a, Col a Coles or a Woolies, that I, I'm actually a big fan of that non-discretionary spend. So it's supermarkets, butchers, hairdressers, and some of those butchers and hairdressers, they're small investments, they're small properties, and they're probably accessible to most who are considering a commercial property investment. One of the other ones that I really like are the smaller supermarkets like the IGAs and a lot of those in regional areas aren't um, they don't have a significant price tag, and by that I mean, you know, a couple of million dollars would buy a lot of the smaller IGAs in regional Australia. And so, whether that's a one or a two-person type of investment, from what we were talking before, but you can have a small syndicate to buy some of those. And I'm a bit of a fan of those IGAs. They've, um, in my opinion, sat behind the returns being offered by the Coles and Woolies, and for good reason because of the strength of the tenancy. But in terms of their ongoing demand and future in those regional areas where Woolies or Coles won't enter because it's not viable, I think they've got um, further upside into the medium term. Awesome. You've let me down nice and easy there. Before. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I do. I, I, I do really think that the industrial area, and it's a growth area, um, it's well in demand and so many people are downsizing, particularly in um, the, the bigger cities, and they need that storage. So there's no doubt there's a big demand. It's just, it's The only thing in the back of my mind is it can be replicated, and that's one of the things I sort of have as a bit of a criteria for investments to to maximise your capital growth, um, you know, it's like waterfront property and residential. You know, if you can't replicate it, that's where the, the largest growth seems to be. Mm. So just on that, um, it always intrigues me as to where the next service station is going to pop up, where the next supermarket is going to pop up. And and sometimes they, they pop up in unusual positions and then five years later you think, oh, that was a no-brainer. Uh, where does someone off the street just simply go and look for this stuff? Is it um, do, do councils talk about it? Is it is it on their websites in planning and development? Um, how how does the average person get some intel on that? Certainly, councils are a good source of what sort of in in planning and approval. I mean, most of that is advertised in your local paper as part of a planning process, and so you can sort of become aware of all that. Um, in my opinion, the new stuff is probably may not be the area your listeners want to dip their toe in the water in. They might be better off with something that's established. So one of the benefits of buying something that's already existing, been operating for a period of time, is most of the unknowns are known. So versus a new property, 
um, you know, that hasn't been tenanted before or in a new area, you, you're, you're sort of taking potentially more risk and possibly that will be rewarded and you'll get a lot more upside. But there is that sort of slightly higher risk for that type of investment. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I've traditionally been looking at things that have already pre-existing that you've actually got the track record on, you sort of can that's sort of all been crystallised and it's really your view and opinion, if you like, on the investment into the medium term and, and, and where the growth's going to be. But you're not taking risk on whether a tenant's going to survive in business in this new location. Yeah, cool. Makes sense. Now, as I've been, you know, uh, obtaining the information from today as well as asking questions, I feel like the listeners are going to have more questions. Like was, as soon as you unpack one thing, it's like, oh, but what about that? What about that? So um, if you're willing and able to, I'm sure in the future we may do another episode to collate extra questions that have come out of today's episode. Um, if you are listening and you're sort of nodding, thinking, yes, I've got more to ask, um, please feel free to um, post in the My Millennial Money Facebook page and put hashtag property and probably add hashtag commercial. That will help us filter um, those questions or feel free to send me a direct message on Instagram. I'm happy to, to add them to the list. Um, but really, this has been a great high level, you know, summary of commercial, what to be aware of, what the different types are. And even I've learned some things today that I didn't quite know about commercial as well from someone, you know, possibly considering getting into it. So, um, John, did you have anything um, in closing question wise or comments that you wanted to finish out with? No, I think that was great, Matthew. You've, you've, um, you've cleared up a lot of things for people thinking commercially, but I agree, Emily. It's it's definitely an episode two that we need to um, continue with and just, just making sure that the listeners are, are getting what they need out of it um, because we can ask all the questions we want thinking that that's what we'd like to know, but who are we? Let's be honest. <laughs> who are we? <laughs> Sounds good. Well, thank you kindly, Matthew Wallace, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed it and more than happy to come back um, and answer any questions that your listeners might have in the future. We'll be holding you to that, definitely. Thank you so much. Everyone have a great week ahead. We will uh, be with you again next week. Okay, bye. We acknowledge the dark and young people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respect to their elders, past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. Taking your property journey to the next level starts with education. That's why we make this podcast, but we've also created online courses to equip you with the knowledge you need to take the next steps. I've created the Solvair Online Academy, open to both first home buyers and seasoned investors, where I share my tips and experience from 20 years in the property space. And I've created the Buying Coach, built from my experience as a buyer's advocate to demystify the confusion around purchasing property, particularly for first home buyers. Follow the links in the show notes to sign up and get started today. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive, Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, is an authorized representative of Money Sherpa, Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.